You've got to be kidding me. Seriously? No way. All kinds of statements or words that elicit some type of reaction. You've got to be kidding me. Seriously? No way. That'll never happen. One of my children has turned my goodness into my lanta. I don't know why. I don't know what that means. She just goes, my lanta, which means to her, my goodness. And then there's the one that kind of makes me wince whenever I hear it. Oh, my God. OMG. It's used by countless numbers of us. Many of us don't have really any idea that it might offend someone else because OMG has just become another one of those, you've got to be kidding me, are you serious, there's no way, my lanta, oh my God. And we've been talking about this idea of OMG and we conclude our discussions of it this morning because we're looking toward the season of Christmas that's right, right upon us. We'll be switching gears and moving toward that celebration of the coming of Jesus. But we have a couple of things, few things we need to say before we close the book or before we turn away from this idea of what OMG really means. We've been discussing OMG, oh my God, against the backdrop of one of the commandments that Jesus gave us, that God gave Moses in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 20, the third of ten commandments where he said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We discussed how that does not mean that you're uh, keeping the spirit of that commandment if you don't couple God's name with a profanity. Now, that's certainly showing irreverence for God's name, but many of us think we've gotten away with it if that's something we never do. And I remember I used to think for years that there was one of the ten that I know for sure I will never break because I would never tie God's name with a profane word, with a cuss word, a profanity. But we discovered that that's not really what the heart of the third commandment's all about, that it really is you shall not hold forth God's name for nothing. And that changes the idea of the third commandment. Because if we claim to be Christians, if we bear that label, we have that tag, we go around with that title that we're children of God, then indeed we are holding forth that we're children of God. Do we have anything to show for it? Do we have anything, anything that would attest to the fact that what the label says, it's what you will really find on the inside. We want to wrap up our discussions of OMG, oh my God, the danger of taking God's name in vain, holding it forth with nothing to show for it. With simply, simply the fact that I want to approach it not from that profanity aspect, but actually using OMG as a response, a surprise of things that we thought we knew but we didn't, or we did know and forgot. You know, there is a strange little word in the Bible. It's almost a, well, it's an English word for some of us because 
Sometimes you take words in the Bible and you transliterate them, which means you just take them as they sound in Greek or Hebrew, and you bring them forward and pronounce them, and they become very commonplace to us. One of those is agape. Agape is the Greek word for love, but it is A-G-A-P-E, the Greek letters, and we just transliterated them, and agape to many people is an English word, but it's really the Greek word for love that's been transliterated from the Greek into English. Well, there is a, a word in a related language in the Bible. You remember, the Bible is made up of three languages, Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament, and then there's this hybrid language called Aramaic. Jesus actually spoke that language, the Aramaic language, when he was walking on the face of the earth. It's in the Hebrew family. But there's an Aramaic word, Maranatha. Maybe you've heard that word before. Maranatha is, uh, uh, I've been to a church that's called Maranatha Church. I've gone to a bookstore. I've ordered books from a bookstore in the past. It's the Maranatha bookstore. I've been to a coffee shop that's called Maranatha because Maranatha is just one of those words that we've transliterated from the Aramaic language into the English language. But do you know what it means? Well, it depends on how you divide the word into syllables. It can actually have two translations or two meanings. One of those... Maranatha literally means, Lord Jesus, come. But if you divide it in a different place in the word, instead of Maranatha, it's Maranatha, and you put the accent on the very last syllable, it becomes a prayer. Lord Jesus, come. See the difference? Hear the difference? Same word. But depending on where you accent the syllables, it's either an expon- it's either a, a, an announcement, the Lord comes, or it's a prayer, Lord Jesus, come. I want to approach, oh my God, in how we say the phrase. I want us to not think of, oh my God, as we would, you've got to be kidding me, or as we would seriously, or as we would any other statement that shows we can't believe it. Oh my God. Well, you can see what that means. But if you say it, oh my God, it becomes, I didn't know that. Oh my God, I did not realize Oh, my God, thank you for what you've done for me. So if we're going to use O-N-G in our language, if we're going to use the phrase, oh, my God, let's make it. Let's make it a, a phrase that makes us smile because we discovered things about our God that we had forgotten or we didn't know. We turn to the New Testament book called Hebrews. It's over there in the 10th chapter where we have some, oh my God, I didn't know that, truths that I want to go over with you. So that as we leave this topic of OMG and as you go back out and when you're texting, 
Be careful how you use those three little letters, O-M-G. Or when you're talking to people, be careful how you call upon God's name. When you say, oh my God, or oh Lord, or God forbid. Let's make it, oh my God, you have done such wondrous things for me. And I give thanks. It's Hebrews chapter 10. It's in verses 22 through 25. I just want to take... A phrase at a time, discuss it with you. Then we'll see how God will bless our meeting together this hour. He says in that 22nd verse of Hebrews, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I would say, oh my God, I didn't know. I didn't know that. And verse 22 tells me that I could actually talk to God. Now think of what we just read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And the response is, OMG, I didn't know that. Oh my God, thank you for reminding me. And if the 22nd verse of the 10th chapter of Hebrews tells us anything, it is that we had the opportunity to talk to God ourselves. Now, if you go back and look at those phrases that he uses, he is drawing back against the Old Testament temple practice of sacrifice. That until the time of Jesus... Over and over again, what must a person do to have forgiveness of sin? They must make sacrifice. And all of this analogy, all of this talk about being sprinkled with blood and about being able to approach the throne of God is the writer saying, now that Jesus has come, we can draw ourselves. We can be drawn to the very throne room of God with full assurance. We don't have to make sure that we've repeated and been repetitive in the sacrifice. In other words, we don't have to have a priest who goes before us as the people in the Old Testament did. The priesthood, very, very important in leading up to the time of Jesus. The priesthood after the time of Jesus, it wasn't necessary to have that intermediary. It wasn't necessary to have that priest. It wasn't necessary for someone to go and stand between you and God, between me and God. Oh, my God. I see it differently. But that's not all the writer of Hebrews says. He says in verse 23, Let us hold Fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. OMG, oh my God, I did not know. I had forgotten that Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 tells me that my salvation is for keeps. Did you hear what he said? He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. And what is the confession of our hope? It's that Jesus saves. It's everything wrapped up in what Christ 
has done for us. And that God has reached down to us. And at Christmas, we celebrate the season with the word and the concept of Emmanuel, God with us. And here, the writer reminds us that we need to look up and say, thank you, God. Oh, my God. I didn't realize or I'd forgotten that my salvation indeed, the confession of my hope is secure because my salvation is once for all. I don't do as much, I don't do counseling like you might think counseling should be done. I'm not qualified. I'm not a, I'm not a licensed profession, professional counselor. If I, if I was doing counseling, people wouldn't respond to me very well because my counsel is usually something like, you did what? Quit it. You know, <laughs> that's all I know to say. You did this? You've got to be kidding me. Stop it. Start doing the right thing. And I know it's much more involved than that. There are many facets and many experiences that a person needs to have. And in my own need for counseling, I have gone to those who are, who are trained to do those things and to help me through several issues that I've faced in years past. And I appreciate that. But if there's one counseling subject that's brought to my door more than any other, If people come and say, Pastor, this is what's bothering me, or can you help me with this? It's this right here. It's this, can I be sure that God loves me? Can I be sure that God isn't going to disown me? And it all goes to the nature of salvation. You see, we can't help it. We liken salvation to our job. If we perform well, we get a raise. If we don't, we might get fired. That's how most people view their relationship with Jesus. That it is a a deal that uh, might go south if we don't do our part. We live in constant dread and constant fear that God is going to remove his presence from us. And nothing could be further from the truth. Indeed, if salvation depends upon you and me, then we're in, a, we're in trouble. We're, we're, we're facing eternal damnation if it depends upon you and me. But the Scripture is very clear that salvation is not based upon our works. It's not based upon what we could do. It's based upon our receiving a work that has been done once for all. That was the work that Jesus did upon the cross. And the writer here says, hold fast to your confession of hope. Hope is looking to the future with expectation that God has us in his hands. And why people over and over again, it seems like on a daily basis, have to go through this spiritual wilderness of, is God still with me? Is he going to be with me tomorrow? Oh, my God. You have told me time and time again that my salvation depends upon you and not me. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. OMG, 
oh my God, I didn't know or I forgot. The church was more than a social gathering. Church is more than a social gathering. The writer says, let us stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And he's telling us that in the context of the church. I am so tired of this sling. If you didn't know it, I had surgery Wednesday week ago. I messed up this right shoulder. Had to have, uh, you know, they tell you one thing going in, then you wake up and find out that they did a whole lot more. And that's to be expected. But I had to have two of the rotator cuff muscles that had been torn, repaired, and then he discovered that this biceps muscle and tendon had come unattached and he had to reattach it down into the bone. And it just hurts to talk about it, so I won't anymore. But I've got to be with this thing for five more weeks. I am, my dominant hand is this one. This one is my, this, this one is worthless right here. <laughs> I've come to discover. I used to say left-handed, it's not left-handed, right-handed, because I'm not, I'm not against those who were left-handed. It's your dominant side. It's your dominant part of your body. And for me, the dominant arm and the dominant hand is this one. But I'm having to make do and trying to get this one to do the things that this one does. And it hasn't been working out very well. I did mention, and I, I may have not clarified it, I told you I couldn't play golf for five months. That is true. But I also told you I couldn't drive for three months. That is true with the car that I have that has a stick shift because I can't, I can't, I can't for three months. I can drive the truck that has an automatic, but getting inside and getting buckled up and moving over here and putting the key in, it's just almost not worth it. So if I need to go somewhere, Marcy's not available, I'm calling somebody. It may be you. But getting along this way is not the way it's supposed to be. Funny. Are you serious? You've got to be kidding me that God calls the church his body. He does. He talks about the church being the body of Christ. And he has Paul talk about that body. You remember some of the things he says? It's not said in this verse. But he says that each one of us have a particular part to play. A particular role, a particular body part, if you will. And he talks about how one part is not more important than the other. And more than anything, when one part is not working as it ought to, it makes it exceedingly difficult on everyone else and every other part of the body. Oh, me. Yes. I can't wait to get motion back here. Now, if you were to talk to me today, I would say my shoulder will never move more than it's moving right here, right now. I know better than that, and I have faith that it will get better. But right now, today, it's worthless. And how many times in the church 
do we try to accomplish things when our own members won't step up and do their part? When the hands won't be the hands and the eyes won't be the eyes and the noses won't be the noses. It's a serious issue. And Paul, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And that's through the church. Because if you view the church as just a social gathering, then you've missed the point altogether. But it's God's body. And you need to do your part. And how are we going to know you're doing your part unless you step up, unless you agree to serve, unless you volunteer? Oh my God, I had forgotten. He continues that thought, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you start at the back there, as you see the day drawing near, Paul's talk, the writer's talking about the coming of Jesus. He felt, the writer of Hebrews felt, that he would see the return of Jesus in his lifetime. Every generation should feel that way. Every generation should assume that Jesus is going to return in their lifetime, in their generation, in their lifespan. And so should we. And so he says, until that day draws near, until the day when God brings all things to their proper end, we need to be doing what the church is supposed to do. And that is assembling together, encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. My God, I didn't realize, I had forgotten that God in Christ loves and believes in and died for the church. Oh, my God. Thank you for reminding us of this truth. You see, folks, you can, you can quit paying dues to a club. If you sign up for an organization, you can unsign up. You can cross your name out. If you view church as nothing more than a place where you gather with people who you might be friends with, and your agenda is nothing more than what a social club or what a service club or what some government organization may do, then if you get your feelings hurt, you're going to what? You're just going to pull out. You're just going to quit coming. You're just going to stiff arm any type of contact from your church. But the church is not a social organization. And you don't de-church yourself. You don't leave it. Or at least you shouldn't. There was a talk show that I don't think it's on anymore. The guy's, guy was known for his top ten list of different things. I think it was Dave Letterman, if I remember right. Well, I stumbled across a top ten reason list why Christians leave the church. Or they come so seldom that they never feel connected. Number ten, I prefer bedside Baptist church with their pastor, M.Y. Pillow. You, you under, did you hear me? Okay. 
means you sleep in. Someone took my pew and I'm never coming back. They don't use the Bible I prefer. They won't let me bring coffee to the worship service. The sound system is too loud. Or conversely, some would say it's too soft. If they won't do the old hymns, count me out. Christmas and Easter are enough for me. Here's one, this one. My child isn't happy and I'm not going to make him go. How many, how many parents are pulled by the nose, if you will, from one church to the other by a child that doesn't have the emotional or the maturity to make any spiritual decision whatsoever? But yet the parents are floating around trying to find where their child will be happy. All they ever do is ask for money. And the number one reason, I don't get fed by the pastor. Well, you may relate to some of those reasons. You may not. But let me give you the top ten reasons why you should stay connected in church. Oh, my God, you're right. There there aren't ten reasons. There's only one. There's only one reason. We don't need two. We don't need 20. We certainly don't need to round it off to 10. There is one reason and one reason alone why you and I should stay connected with the church. And that's because it's God's command. Are you kidding me? Seriously? My lanta? God commands it. But let me give you just five that come to my mind to support this one reason. It's at church where I will experience authentic fellowship with other believers. It's my church where I will find a place to serve. It's my church where I will find direction for my life. It's my church where I will experience Authentic worship. And it's in my church where I will forge lasting relationships. Oh my God. Never will I want to use that phrase. Like I would say, you've got to be kidding me. Or like I would say, that can't be true. Or like I would say, I don't know what else to say. Never would we want to trivialize God's name. But if we were to ever use OMG, if we were ever to see the phrase, oh my God, in its proper biblical context, we ought to be saying it every day. Oh my God. Thank you for that reminder. Oh my God. Thank you for your love. Oh my God. Thank you. For pointing me in the right direction. Oh my God, may I never use and hold forth your name again with nothing to show for it. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you to gather in your name. To call upon your name. 
Father, help us to understand and to know that you care deeply about our daily living, the decisions we make, the direction our lives go. And Father, especially in this season of the year, as we look toward what it means to to give, to be generous, to reach out, to look beyond ourselves. Help us to be grounded in these things that your word reminds us of. To where OMG for us is not something that we say to trivialize your name, but that OMG is our cry of desperation and our cry of thanksgiving to you. These are the prayers that we offer, and we make them in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We wrap up this hour the way we do each and every time we meet. God gives us an opportunity to respond because he has spoken to us. And it's my prayer that God has done that today. That something that we've done in this hour, maybe bringing down a shoebox, maybe hearing and singing a song that we've known, but doing it in a different way, maybe opening his word and realizing that so much of the time we were guilty of trivializing God's name. But because God has spoken, he wants us to respond. And the responses we can give to him are several. It could be that someone in this room, you've yet to say yes to the claim of Jesus upon your life. It goes back to that confession of hope. And if you're living every day doubting whether or not you belong to God, that's an issue that you can settle. You can settle it quickly. If you're here today and you want to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, then we ask you to come down so that we can support you and can pray for you. In so doing so, you're announcing to the world that you belong to him, which is God's command to each one of us. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord, just never never told the world, never followed him in believer's baptism. Let's visit about that. Let's talk through what that spiritual symbol really is all about. Maybe you're here today and a church to call your own is what you need. And maybe you feel drawn to join this church. How would you do that? How do you join a church like ours? You come forward. Maybe you're here today and you're a member of a church, if not this one. Maybe your idea of church has been more in line with something that you could unjoin if you wanted to. Or that you could toss aside if you wanted to. But with God's family and God's church, that's not possible. So what is it going to take for you to come to terms that we're all different? We may think certain ways in certain issues, but we're united together in the unity that belongs to God, not to any of us. And to become that part of the body that does what it's supposed to do. We don't want to go around looking to a world like I look today. We want to be using every part of the body to glorify God. So what does that mean for you? What kind of obedience does that demand? Be willing to follow him wherever he leads. Ministers and deacons will be standing here. If you need prayer, we're here to pray for you as well. We stand together. We sing. Won't you respond as God leads?